Welcome to the Confab. I'm Eric Felton. This is where the editors and writers of the Weekly Standard get together to talk about what's in the magazine, what's in the news, and whatever else may be on our minds. Michael Warren is here to talk about a dilemma for the White House. Do they stick with the nuclear deal negotiated with Iran by the Obama administration, or tear it up and try to work out another way of restraining Iran's nuclear ambitions? Alice Lloyd is coming by to tell us about a summit this week at the Department of Education. Interpretations of Title IX in the last few years have forced colleges to take a hard line in investigating accusations of sexual misconduct and in punishing students found guilty. Is there a growing consensus that the rights of the accused need to be protected too? And Andy Ferguson has reviewed a new collection of newspaper writing by the great comic author of the teens and 20s, Ring Lardner. He'll be coming by to tell us why Lardner is still well worth reading. All that coming up on The Confab. Now we get the confab going in earnest with Mr. Michael Warren, White House correspondent, senior writer for the Weekly Standard. Michael, how are you? I'm great, Eric. Thanks for having me. Thanks for making it. So as hard as it is to believe in the midst of the whole Donald Trump Jr. controversy, there's actually matters of significance going on on Capitol Hill and in the White House. <laughs> Actual policy is being made or perhaps not made. And in particular, um, the administration has had to deal with the question of whether to certify that Iran is keeping its word in implementing the big Iran deal. Um, where do things stand on that? So uh, you're right, Eric. There, there are things of substance going on and discussions and debates and uh, uh, sometimes intense debates within the administration even about what exactly to do. There's a deadline coming up. It's on uh, uh, on July 17th. Uh, it is a deadline that's imposed by Congress. Congress essentially uh, passed a law when the Iran deal uh, was made back in 2015 uh, that uh, requires the administration, whether it's the Obama administration when they were uh, uh, in power or now the Trump administration, uh, to certify that Iran is, uh, as you say, is, it's incorrect to say to certify that Iran is uh, is complying with the deal. It's rather that they are. Uh, it's very kind of a weirdly specific, uh, as as congressional uh, uh, legal language often is, fully implementing the agreement and not in material breach of the agreement. So this is kind of lawyerly lawyerly language, um, and it's something that the Trump administration and President Trump himself don't like. Uh, but feel Donald like, Trump campaigned on tearing up the deal with Iran. That's right. He called it his number one priority. Uh, and back in April, when uh, the and I should say if I if I didn't say already, uh, uh, the administration is required to certify this every every ninety days. It's sort of a ninety day window. Uh, so the first sort Run of not every week. <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh, I don't know why. It's 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 essentially to. Uh, 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 sort of a stopgap, okay, a benchmark rather, I should say, um, uh, in in sort of monitoring Iran's uh, uh, actions and behavior. So the first came in uh, in April, in the middle of April, the first uh, for the Trump presidency, and sort of reluctantly, but with with some reason, uh, the Trump administration 
uh, and Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, recertified. They uh, the administration was so, still sort of getting everything to together. recertify is to say, Iran, you're OK for now. The economic sanctions that we've lifted will keep them in place. Uh, you're uh, yes, you, you are strictly in the strict guidelines of what the Iran deal says. You're doing OK, although, uh, as Tillerson said, you know, we, we still want to point out that Iran is a state sponsor of terror and there are some questions and problems. So this was back in April. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, and this is still ongoing, but meanwhile, the administration had just started reviewing its Iran policy, sort of interagency review. What was, is our Iran policy? And that was sort of given as an explanation for why the Trump administration needed to certify in April is we're trying to figure this out uh, by a little time, by a little time. And this is in, in some ways sort of a made up deadline by Congress. Now, of course, that's law and it's, it's not not to be flip about it, but it sort of doesn't necessarily track with where the administration is and sort of figuring out their foreign policy. So now let's fast forward to July. July 17 is the next 90 day deadline. Uh, and so there is this question. And um, and what uh, what we're able to report at the Weekly Standard is that uh, there was this debate within the uh, administration and his foreign policy national security team uh, about whether to recertify again. The president doesn't want to do it. And in fact, there are Republican hawk senators uh, who are who wrote a letter to him saying, please, Mr. President, don't, or Secretary Tillerson, don't recertify this. Iran is uh, in violation of, of these various aspects of the deal, uh, and it sends the wrong message. Um, but uh, as we understand it, uh, at the moment, at least, you can never be too sure with this president. There is a plan. They are going to recertify this. And the question uh, at this point is, is, is why and how does that fit in with uh, uh, both Trump's campaign rhetoric about the Iran deal and also the Trump foreign, uh, foreign policy on Iran? So is part of it that uh, they don't have lined up yet um, European allies for reimposing sanctions on Iran? Well, that's right. The, uh, remember, the Iran deal was uh, uh, was brokered uh, with the European Union, the P five plus one, basically the, all the UN um, uh, uh, Security Council permanent members. Uh, the European allies are the the important part of this. Uh, the European Union uh, now. The, the the idea that uh, the Europeans are are eager to renegotiate this uh, this deal uh, is, is kind of uh, I think is kind of crazy. Um, they've got a lot of business now in the new open uh, uh, Iran, uh, open from economic sa- sanctions that have been placed on them by the international community, uh, and so they're not necessarily eager to uh, to renegotiate. Um, uh, but the administration uh, and President Trump have sort of uh, do have, you know, have the position that they are not, Iran is not in, in uh, compliance with the spirit of the deal. And in, in fact, uh, the deal itself is broken because of um, this phrase, it's called the, the sunset provisions, which essentially in the deal uh, allows for all the restrictions on Iran's uh, nuclear program. Uh, to be lifted after a certain period of time. So the whole point of the Iran deal, right, is that Iran uh, uh, curbs its nuclear program and curbs its nuclear ambitions in exchange for the United States and the Europeans lifting these economic sanctions and helping out the the uh, Iran economy. Uh, and uh, uh, but it, it, but if this these sunset provisions uh, remain in effect, essentially the Iranians what they what they do is uh, kind of follow the letter to the letter of the deal um, as best they can 
while doing some violations that, you know, maybe the Obama administration didn't really care about. The Trump administration is trying to be more stringent in enforcing that uh, and then sort of wait things out until these sunset provisions uh, go into uh, go into effect or rather sort of fall out of effect 10 years down the road. It depends on what the particular element of the nuclear program is. Um, that's something that uh, that that really really worries the Trump administration. What what do the hawks say though to the argument one might make that um, hey look, when it comes to nuclear uh, development, ten years is kind of a lifetime. If you can buy ten years, buy ten years. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's the argument. I I I I I, I, that I think certainly the State Department uh, uh, bureaucrats. Uh, believe we all, all essentially the support the Iran deal. Boys. Exactly uh, that that there are some fears that Tillerson, the Secretary of State, is sort of falling prey to is gone gone native uh, in in Foggy Bottom. Um, but 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 look the 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 real fact of the matter is is that Iran wants a nuclear weapon and they'll do whatever uh, whatever it, it, it takes to do that. And they're they're doing things. They're trying surreptitiously to purchase uranium or other nuclear. Um, uh, rather nuclear uh, weapons material, uh, German intelligence has found this out. And so what the Hawks argue back to that is that Iran is not acting in good faith on this. Um, they're a bad actor. The deal essentially gives them a timeline for when the international community is going to you know, look the other way, and then they'll pursue what they are always wanting to pursue. Now, Donald Trump has talked about renegotiating a deal. Is there really any prospect that Iran would go into a whole new round of negotiation if this deal were taken away? It, it would be very, very difficult um, for the reasons that we mentioned, right? The European allies um, aren't interested in it. Um, Iran would have another opportunity to say the Americans are acting in bad faith here. Um, I mean, I guess there's a viewpoint within the administration that by recertifying this, by sort of kicking the can a little bit down the road, they can help uh, uh, finish up this policy, Iran policy review. And and according to Bob Corker, the uh, 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 Senate Foreign Relations Committee chair, uh, Rex Tillerson has told him, uh, I think the quote is, uh, uh, his goal is to have a different agreement over time that prevents them from ever enriching. And that suggests that the administration is thinking about whether it's a follow-on deal, sort of a, a, a Iran deal part two that is you know, stronger and, and stricter and adds on more sanctions, whether that's a completely new, newly rego- negotiated deal, um, it's kind of vague. And, of course, the State Department's not really uh, commenting on it. But uh, most experts think it would be extremely difficult. Um, this is a very tough position that uh, the Trump administration finds themselves in. There's, the whole Iran deal was sort of designed to be very difficult to get out of. That's something I, was, I would say the White House is very cognizant of. The president is very cognizant of. I'm told that he's very angry. He sides with the hawks in, in Congress. He, he just wants to scrap the deal. But even, even he kind of realizes uh that it's not so easy to do that. And there's a lot of moving parts here that uh, uh, sort of a Rube Goldberg experiment, uh, a Rube Goldberg device. And if you sort of mess up one part of it, it all is going to fall apart. Who knows what happens after that? It's a good thing with all of this complicated negotiation and, <laughs> and statecraft and to be done that there aren't any distractions going on at the White House. That's right. It's, 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 it's all Iran, nothing but Iran from here on out. So we're fully concentrated. Michael Warren. White House correspondent for the (laughs) Weekly Standard. Thanks for joining us on the Confab. Thanks, Eric.
Now we welcome to the CONFAB Alice Lloyd, reporter for the Weekly Standard. Alice, welcome. Thank you. So Thursday you went to a summit at at the Department of Education having to do with Title IX. Title IX is one of those weird things where it was originally intended to ensure that women had equal opportunities to education and now has become embroiled in the politics of how sexual assault cases get litigated on campus. How did it get that far? Well, interestingly, at the time that it was enacted, there were people, you know, sort of equal rights amendment feminist advocates in the early 70s who knew that it was more powerful than um, than Congress realized. Um, and so when Title IX came to, for instance, require that men and women's sports teams got equal funding on college campuses, there was some head scratching. It's gone a lot further since then. So the original statute says that no person shall on the basis of sex be excluded from participation in benefits of yada yada any education program that gets federal funding. Under the Obama administration, this came to mean a couple of stretchy things. Now, in particular, there seems to have been much debate in the last couple of years over the expectation that colleges become courts of a sort for sexual assault charges, but courts in which there are not the kinds of protections that an actual court has for the accused. That, that that was the subject of the summit on Thursday at the Department of Education, only because lawyers who represent students, um, students who report these instances of sexual assault and students who are accused of them have come to agree, um, lawyers that is, not activists, not politicians, but legal legal advocates, lawyers, um, have come to agree that the... the the reinterpretation of Title IX by the Obama administration was damaging and unfair and deprived everyone of the fairness they are due, uh, which is a really powerful thing to have happen. Um, so I, I spoke Wednesday before the summit with um, a victim's rights advocate, which means that she runs an organization. She founded and runs an organization. She herself is a lawyer. Her name is Laura Dunn, an organization that defends, protects young women who claim to have been sexually assaulted. And she and she says that their claims are legitimate far more often than they are not. And she says that due process protections for accused students need to be improved so that these cases, for instance, aren't remanded in the civil court and so that so that her clients don't need to be forced to go through the process again which so often happens because the adjudication that 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 campuses were required to perform by a guidance document that had from come the from the white house infamous dear colleague letter that passed down this guidance on campus sexual assault it was issued in April 2011, right around the time that re-election was beginning. And so it was kind of like throwing a bone to the progressive constituent, uh, to, well, to the progressive voter, I should say. And, and, and 
I mean, that now now that's practically just part of the part of the, the the mythical legacy of injustice that we just run through when we talk about this issue. But it's really pretty shameful, and people on both sides recognize that it's damaging, and that's what Secretary DeVos heard on Thursday when she met with advocates for victims, advocates for the falsely accused, and administrators, experts, and and sort of. Um, I mean, there's a campus sex bureaucracy that's built up around how to legislate these things, really. So she she met with... And, and do, do those bureaucracies want to protect their own existence? Is, is there pushback from universities that have built up these bureaucracies that they want to maintain them? Or do universities want to find a way of getting out of the business of being... Um, sexual assault courts. That's what's so interesting, because honestly, just a couple of weeks ago, I would have said that it's in their interest to keep doing things the way they're doing them, but just because of the way that, I mean, just because of the way that the campus culture tends to fall in these in these situations. But now I don't think that anymore. So, th- so the tide is turning, and it's no longer really seems to be as much of a partisan issue, except when somebody makes a gaffe. And there was a gaffe this week. There was. What was the gaffe? So one of the, I mean, one of the, one of the all-time best hires of this administration, the the, the acting head of um, the Office for Civil Rights in in the Department of Education, who who oversees um, this 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 particularly controversial area, made made an off the cuff, and she she apologized. She called it a flippant characterization. Made it made it sort of seemingly off the cuff, cuff comment to the New York Times saying that the vast majority of these cases are, you know, of a certain type and are, are, you know, he said, she said cases or drunken hookups gone wrong are therefore really hard to adjudicate. And if you spend any time on a college campus, I mean, of course they are. That only makes sense. But it's also not something that someone in her position, and she recognized this, ought to have said to a New York Times reporter, is she going to survive in her position? I hope so. Um, if only because I, I I heard from people this week, lawyers um, who who worked on an American Bar Association task force, people who are you know as I keep repeating, I feel like victims' rights advocates, people who are advocates for accused students, and these are lawyers who represent those different types of students. <laughs> came came to agree on a set of recommendations for OCR. Um, That's the Office of Civil Rights yes. in the Department of Education. Yeah, and it's OCR that was infamously responsible for for the, the Title IX guidance that kicked off all this mess. And it's OCR now, OCR in a new era, under Candace Jackson, recently disgraced, <laughs> by by her own candid comment, Sociar who's responsible for for fixing it, and and anyway, it's it's this newly disgraced head of OCR who I've heard is um, very responsive to the recommendations from the American Bar Association, the recommendations that are it represent a very meaningful compromise that could help that could help restore you know inalienable rights to 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 a lot of college students. All right, we'll follow how it goes and have you back to tell us uh, what the outcome is. I Alice, will. Alice Lloyd, reporter for the Weekly Standard. Thanks for joining us on the Confab. Thank you for having me.
Now we're joined on the Confab by Mr. Andrew Ferguson, Senior Editor of the Weekly Standard. Andy, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Eric. How are you? Fine, thank you. I thoroughly enjoyed the piece you have in the magazine this week about the great writer Ring Lardner. It got me thinking, I, I have a friend, Eliza McGraw, who recently wrote a book about Edna Ferber. And it's oh. you know someone who is considered a great writer uh, in the early 20th century, huge literary celebrity who has that most people you'd say, hey, how about Edna Ferber? And people will say, who? Right. These right. days. And you were writing about Ring Lardner, who's another one of these writers from the teens and 20s who loomed large, but has now been kind of largely forgotten. Yeah, yeah. Well, the 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 occasion for the piece was this um, new collection uh, done by a sports writer named Ron Rappaport called The Lost Journalism of Ring Lardner. And uh, he basically discovered a whole tranche of old columns that Lardner had written. Lardner started out as a newspaper man and a, as a newspaper columnist before he branched into writing short stories. And um, at the time, as you say, he, he was hugely famous in the teens and the 20s, um, both as a journalist and as a short story writer. His short stories, um, a handful of them anyway, are just remain sublime. They're and just this beautiful was the great pieces. era of right. the short story, the right. 20s. Yeah. And he was, he was considered, and, and even now, back then, he was considered sort of father to Fitzgerald and Hemingway. Um, both of whom revered him. Um, Both of whom did some epic drinking with him as yes, well. Yes, ab absolutely. He was, uh, he was a tippler, as they used to say. <laughs> uh, but you can see his influence um, all the way down through the, through the century. I mean, everybody from you know Looney Tune cartoons of Warner Brothers to Lil Abner comic strip to Dave Barry today or even George Sanders or... or um, Donald Bartlemay, you know, these are, they all show the influence of Lardner. Now, as you say in your article, oftentimes old journalism, old newspaper copy does not wear very well. Right. It's our fate, I'm afraid, the journalist's fate. Um, you know, that's why they call it fish wrap. Uh, and this is true, I have to say, in, in the book itself. Um, some of the pieces truly are spectacularly good in my opinion but uh, a lot of it is you know it's so anachronistic and so all the references are dated you know the sort of inside jokes that wouldn't have been that inside to the average reader in 1919 you know it's just totally lost on us uh, Rappaport is a very good editor though and he's got some great notes in there to help readers along but it's it, it can be a tough slog sometimes simply because you know it was written of the moment it was written for a particular audience at a particular time, which is the definition of journalism. And there were journalistic practices at the time that you could never get away with now are sort of anathema to the modern professional journalism, which is um, having things from people who are clearly fictionalized people that and right. having lots of things said that are the you know, fantastical, fictional creation right. of the author rather than something that he heard someone actually say. Right, right. I mean, it, Lardner did some reporting, I mean, a fair amount of reporting, but uh, he, I mean, we were talking about this, it's, he incredibly, to, to the modern journalist, or at least I think a lot of modern journalists, he wrote 
a column of a thousand words length six days a week and uh, getting Sunday off, and then he would probably have to write a long feature for the Sunday paper as well. Whatever you do, don't tell my boss <laughs> about that pace. No, it's it, it's really quite remarkable. But what he did was he opened the column up and made it sort of like a variety show. I mean, he, he would put in plays, uh, jokes. He'd write little satirical essays. He'd um, have gossip. He'd tell fables, all, all kinds of stuff just to keep the copy flowing and keep the reader entertained. And that, you know, he was a great entertainer above all. And yet he had some impressive champions of his work who kept trying to push him to move away from not only ephemera, but from short stories and to, to go for the big game, go big game hunting after the great American novel. Right. Yeah. I mean, he was really universally revered by, by the literary class of his time. But there was always something um, sort of uh, declassé, if that's the word, about him, about you know just being a short story writer. So he had Fitzgerald, F. Scott Fitzgerald, we mentioned earlier, was always pushing him to write um, a grand opus that that would you know become the classic for the ages. And uh, Edmund Wilson, the famous uh, literary critic, said the same thing. He said, "You know, it's, it is now the time that Lardner will will give us his Huckleberry Finn." You know, Huckleberry Finn, of course, being the greatest American novel. And Lardner understood not Moby that, Dick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, is that the one about the whale? Um, but but Lardner understood what he was about. He was a he was a journalist at heart, and the short story form was was the way that he. Um, he best displayed his his talents. And perhaps his best short story collection is the collection of his uh, imagined letters from a baseball player home. Yes, it's called You Know Me, Al. Uh, A lot of his stuff is written in dialect, which can get tiresome, but he has has the, um, not just the language of this poor country boy who turns out to be an extremely gifted pitcher for the Chicago White Sox. Uh, it's not just the language, it's it's also the way of thinking that he perfectly captures in the in the book itself. And that's where, you know, you start to see that this guy isn't just a journalist, he's actually an artist. He's actually creating a world and a mentality that um, that is completely his own. And you can see other great writers who, as you've mentioned, who have copied Ring Lardner. I think of of John O'Hara's great uh, novel and letters, Pal Joey. That yes. couldn't have happened without the Al. Right. I, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, even today, I, I think I mentioned Dave Barry. Dave Barry uh, actually wrote a little squib for the this uh, collection called The Lost Journalism. And, uh, you know, and he, you know, it's clear that Barry is a uh, tremendous fan. And when you read Lardner and then you read Barry, you can see where a lot of Barry's... Um, I don't know, mannerisms uh, were inspired. And, and um, you know, of course, Barry is a supremely talented journalist. We'll see how his copy holds up 100 years later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you and I won't. No, but, no. So, we, but somebody will. No, no. Andy Ferguson, senior editor for the Weekly Standard. Thanks for joining us on the Confab. Thank you, Eric. Confab is brought to you by the Dollar Shave Club. They don't mess around with 14-blade razors and magic lubrication strips or other gimmicky shave technology. 
Confab listeners can get their first month with the Dollar Shave Club for just $5 with free shipping included. Just go to dollarshaveclub.com slash weeklystandard. That's it for the Confab this week. Be sure to tune in to the Confab every week. Just go to iTunes or Google Play for a free subscription or go to our website, weeklystandard.com. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Eric Felton. Catch you next time.